0: And I'm going to read, just to give us some context, and then we'll give into it. But the title of the message is called, The Dangers and the Implications of Unbelief. The Dangers and Implications of Unbelief. So Jesus went out from there, and came into his, own, came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands Is this not the carpenter the son of Mary brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us and they took offense at him And Jesus said to them a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household and he could do no miracle there except He laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief and he was going around the villages teaching. There are two things that Jesus was amazed at in in the Gospels. And it's worth noting. Whenever you see Jesus amazed by something, we should probably take notice of that. It should catch our attention. And there's only two Things that he was amazed at, and they both have to do with the same thing, which was faith. One, there was abundance of faith, and that's in Luke 7 9. When Jesus heard this, he marveled at them, and he turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel I have found such great faith. He marveled at their faith, but also equally, like in this passage, it says here that he also was amazed at their unbelief. He was amazed at their unbelief. Unbelief is incredibly destructive, as you know. It's devastating, both here for the person, but also for all of eternity, right? We could see that even in Genesis 3, 1-7, through the devil tempted Eve to doubt God's word and brought the whole human race down. Not only that, but then in Genesis 6-8, through Noah's day... They were full of unbelief and evil, and God had to destroy the earth. Never to do it again with water, but then later now, as we look forward to the future, Jesus is coming back and will destroy it with fire. Matthew 24, 38-39 says, In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until, that, until, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And it was interesting, we just had a wedding not that long ago this week, beautiful sunshining day, and we're all in the back, kind of like like a backyard, if you will, and just hanging out, and everybody's dressed up and eating and drinking, and, and meanwhile on the other side of the planet, people are suffering greatly with bombs going off, Devastation. Jesus is saying that right in the midst of drinking and marrying and hanging out, in other words, everyday life, the joys of it, he will come back. And he, it won't be good, as the Bible says, for those in unbelief. So Second Peter 3, 3-6 says, In the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Saying, where's the promise of his coming? I mean, we're going to have those days. This is is a joke. You've been waiting for Jesus to come back for 2,000 years. What makes you think he's going to come back? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, there's nothing different. There's nothing new under the sun. There's still people mocking. There's still people that are in rampant unbelief. And then you move on into Exodus. It says that Aaron led the people in unbelief, you know, as the, if you remember, the golden calf. As Moses went up the hill and he met with God, Aaron says, you know, where's this Moses? Why do we even leave Egypt? And he started producing this sense of unbelief into the people, and they were destroyed. It says that thousands of people were killed because of unbelief. Numbers 13, 32, and then. In chapter 14, verse 20, it says that, So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone is spying it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. Unbelief is rampant in the Old Testament. We could read that in every chapter unbelief in fact paul even alludes to that in first corinthians 10 1 to 10 it says for i do not want you to be unaware brethren that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea in other words just look at all the amazing things that he's done and you've witnessed and we're all baptized into moses and in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink you know remember when the stick you know hit the rock and it came out and was flowing miraculously for they were drinking from a spiritual rock The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. In other words, Paul is giving this as an example. He said, Don't you remember? Don't you remember the stories of the Old Testament? They got to experience amazing things, way greater than what you guys are even experiencing today. And yet, what? Do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it was written, these people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Because of what? Unbelief. Unbelief is devastating, it's devastating, it's destructive. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then the New Testament, you've seen this in Stephen in Acts 7, says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, and you doing just as your fathers did, which one of the prophets did which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who were previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You become just like them. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And then John three eighteen says, He who believes in him is not judged, and he who, who does not believe has been judged already because he's not been, he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God and then John eight twenty four. This is remember when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and they were saying, "Look, we're like our we're, we're we're sons of Abraham. We're in." He's like, "No, no, no. You're not in. You will actually die in your sins because you did not believe that I am He." By way of introduction, I, I can go on and on and on. We could do all the New Testament, Old Testament verses, all the New Testament. We'd be here all day. But here's the point unbelief will destroy your life here on earth and the death to come which is the bible describes as hell and now you see Jesus and this is really amazing to me when i was studying this i was thinking because there's some debate in this whether jesus is going back to nazareth or he's or this is his first time and marks just reading you know t- t- telling the story That Luke told in chapter 4, if you remember when he went there and he spoke on Isaiah 61. Remember he says, I have fulfilled this in the midst of you. But many would say, and I would agree with that, that this is his second time back and he's bringing his disciples this time. Because he wants them to see the devastating effects of unbelief. He wants them to see for themselves is before they go out and preach the gospel in the book of Acts, as you see, before they go and they say, wow, do you see how, you could do all these miracles, Peter. You could do all these miracles. You could, even your handkerchief's going to one day heal people. And yet there's going to be people that put you in prison. There's going to be people that are going to kill you, literally, because of unbelief. And so Jesus finds his way back to Nazareth, and you find the context of that for the first visit in Luke 4, verses 14 to 30. I won't read all that, but he preached the gospel there. And the Spirit of the Lord came on him because he he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim the release of the captives and the recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. You think, amen, right? If someone got up in the midst and said, this is what's going to happen now from here on out, this is what Isaiah spoke about, I mean, wouldn't you think, hey, you know what, Jesus, why don't you come over to my house, and we'll have lunch, you know, after service. We'll just hang out, and and you could could recover people's sight. (laughs) By the way, I have a blind grandma that's, uh, you know, in the back, and I would love for you to do that. Instead, they tried throwing him off a cliff, and they said things like this. In verse 22, and all were speaking well of him. So there was astonishment, amazement. And then then some say, well, isn't this Joseph's son? And then in verse 24, Jesus says what he just says here. uh, In Mark chapter 6, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. This is where he grew up where he went to school they're like there's no way this guy i mean this guy's getting up and and saying these profound things i've heard miracles are being done i mean this guy i mean i just saw him with a hammer and a nail i mean he was just you know with his father doing his thing this isn't this cannot be god and in verse 28 all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage and you could see this pattern even in the book of Acts. You could see this even as a pattern as you go out and share the gospel on campus, right? And people are like, wow, that's pretty cool. I, I mean, that, that's interesting. And maybe if, you, if you're, you're sharing the gospel and you're sharing a kind of a nuance or a passage of, of scripture and you're explaining it, and they're like, wow, I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. I love that. You know, I mean, they may not make a decision, but they're certainly amazed. And then some of them are, you know, maybe saying, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not sure I really buy in that Jesus is God. I know he was a really nice man One, you know, back then. I, I don't doubt that he actually existed, but he's just a man. Depending on who you talk to, depending on what religion background they come from, religious background. And then some people will just be ready to knock you off a cliff. And we're going to look at five characteristics of unbelief and warnings for all of us. Because I believe this is, even though, I mean, it's somewhat heavy, I believe at the end it will be encouraging for all of us because we are going to differentiate between unbelief and doubt. And something that we all have, something that we all struggle with. But I want to make something clear that unbelief is dangerous and it is damning. And we need to discuss it. We need to look at it in a little bit more in depth because these same people that Jesus encountered are just like the people today. And so let's pick up in verse 2. So Jesus is there on Sabbath. He goes in. He teaches again. It's amazing that they even invited him back. You wonder like, Hey, you remember the last time I, I, I got up and taught? I mean, I'm not sure if you want me here again As a guest speaker <laughs> um, But they want him to come back And they want him to preach And so he does And it says here in verse 2 It says, many listeners were astonished And so point number one Is that Unbelief causes people to be amazed But not impressed To be amazed But not impressed That's important Because sometimes we can miss the true teaching of Jesus. We can miss what the miracle actually points to. We can miss what what that profound mind-blowing, as it says here in the Greek, ekblaseo, it just means to blast. It means to be mind-blowing. Wow. I mean, they were like, you know when you you get uh, some of these guys, uh, maybe if you've been to a Ligonier conference or uh, some of these pr- profound theologians As they're maybe discussing the trinity Or they're discussing some, some uh, Understanding of salvation Or a deeper understanding Theologically like wow that's just I mean it, you know there's some There's some teachings that's like stand up and let's go Change the world and I feel uh, I feel challenged I, I feel like I, I want to live this better And some are just it, it just hits the heart you think, Wow that's amazing that, that, that just touched my heart That's incredible. But it doesn't change you. To be amazed, to come here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and to simply just be amazed, does not bring transformation. In fact, I mean, this was happening all the time, Matthew 7, 28 to 29, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes in other words this guy is not like these guys these religious guys. i mean i grew up with these sunday school teachers not like this guy he's got quite an authority on his life when he teaches i'm listening but we need to take that a step further are you hearing And applying the message. Look, this is all coming on the heels, if you remember, if you can turn back to Mark chapter 4. Jesus is looking for fourth soil disciples every Sunday. He's like, wake up. Don't just come to hear good biblical teaching. I go to that church because they preach the Bible. You know what? In five to ten years, that probably will come out of your mouth. Hey, why do you go to Antioch? They preach the word. And what you're doing is you're saying that as opposed to they don't preach the word. And they have every right to ask you, that's wonderful, they preach the word, but do you live the word? Do you apply the word? How is that going for you? Are you a fourth soil believer? Is your life being multiplied? Someone who has thorns around their life will not multiply good fruit in other people's lives. I mean, not that you can't do that anyways. You can, but you, won't, you cannot say like Paul, imitate me like I imitate Christ, right? Well, can't we, don't we all want to say that? Don't we all just want to say like Paul with that kind of confidence? And we don't touch that passage with a 10-foot stick, right? We're like, nope, not even going there. I mean, maybe 10 years, I'll inch my way closer to saying that with any sort of confidence. But then he's doing all these miracles, right? I mean, you saw, I mean, you're with us. uh, Pretty amazing things like calming a sea. Who does that? I mean... Next time you're on Royal Caribbean and there's a massive, you know, plates flying all over the place, hey, calm. As one plate just knocks you in the face, as it should. No. You could pray, but not declare that this thing's going to stop. I mean, it's pretty amazing. I'm raising a little girl from the dead, was the last time you did that? And all of a sudden he walks, I mean, it, 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 you know, heals a man, delivers a man from 6,000 demons. Nobody does this stuff. And that's the point. He, he's coming on the heels of this and he's saying, I, I'm just amazed at unbelief. But I'm also amazed at faith. I'm amazed at faith. But I'm equally amazed at what you people saw and yet you're still hardened. John seven fifteen to 16, the Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? He's, as far as I know, he didn't go to the Jerusalem Theological Seminary. Right? I mean, he didn't go there, so Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. I- I'm getting this stuff, like not from a book, but from the creator of the universe. That's my teacher, and I am the word. This is a whole other ball game. People were amazed, but they weren't impressed. And because they weren't impressed, they were not impacted and therefore transformed. There's a way in which this works, guys. You come in, right, or you listen online, or you listen to any teaching for that matter on YouTube, good biblical teaching. And sometimes we're more amazed by the man, aren't we? When's the last time you actually said this to a friend? Man, you've got to listen to this teaching. It's changing my life in this way. Oh, no, man, this guy, he's like, oh, he's just amazing. And you just go on and on and on about this guy, this guy, this guy. That, that, that's more normal, isn't it? It's more normal. It's more human. We'd like to elevate man. That's natural. So the Bible also tells us often, don't boast in man. He cannot change you. But God can. He can change you. Point number two, verse three. Is this not the carpenter, son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are they not his sisters here? And they took offense at him. We'll just deal with the first part of that. But those in unbelief, point number two, is those in unbelief unbelief are offended by the ordinary. They're not amazed nor impressed. Look, these people were offended because they could not believe that this guy who was just either, he was either a stonemason or... He was an arch- Jesus was some sort of architect. He was some sort of tecton. It just means, uh, it's a Greek word for craftsman, builder. He was, he, he, was just a, he was just an ordinary worker. He could get more ordinary. It's just every day. That, that's what, he was like. is he not the carpenter? Is this not just a n- normal dude? Why do we listen to this guy? Let's move on. We know who you are. We grew up with you. It's basically saying, look, there, in every passage, you'll notice this, in every passage in the Gospels, someone is trying to come against Jesus in his divinity. They're trying to say, look, he's just a carpenter. In other passages, right, he, he's a demon, right? I mean, thankfully they didn't go that far in this one. But They did. They did. They just couldn't believe that he didn't have any theological training. He did no miracles. And this is, you know, too, you know, there's a lot of false stuff out about Jesus. You know, he did lots of miracles. You know, there's stuff you can read about, you know, when he's, he's doing this no- normal everyday stuff and maybe he's fishing and, you know, there's, he's like with his buddies, you know, like 10, 11, 12 or something. And he's like, look, watch this. You know, he does all these like miracles just to impress people. He didn't do any of those things. You know why we know that from this passage? Because if he did, everyone would know he did miracles. So they wouldn't be like, isn't this not the carpenter? They'd be like, no, you know, what? well, I know he does some miracles in the, future, in the past. Maybe, you know, maybe he's changed, whatever. No, no. He didn't know miracles until, until Cana. And so we could trust the word of God. He did nothing until that time. That was the time that he began to do his ministry. And so we know that. We know he was just an ordinary 30-year-old man who walked on the scene, he was now beginning to perform his ministry, and then eventually die for our sins. In John seven verse five. Not even his brothers were believing in him. Mark three twenty one. If you remember last week, they, they said like this, this guy lost his senses. There's kind of an intervention. Hey, let, hey Jesus, just why don't we just go home? You know, a little cuckoo. And do you remember that passage? Chapter three. Let's just. The family was trying to help him out. You're kind of an embarrassment to me. His mom and dad are like, you know, and and some say the reason why they called him son of Mary is because perhaps even Joseph had died, but it also could be kind of, in some sense, uh, derogatory or offensive. It it was kind of offensive to be called uh, by your mother's son. Uh, Usually they would, you know, like you saw in Luke, it says, isn't this Joseph's son? This was even meant to kind of stick a knife in him and sense it like, well, oh, who is this? You're just the son of Mary, this woman. Basically just casting doubt on who he was. You mean to tell me this guy can do all these miracles and he can't convince his family? How could he, how could he have all this following and yet his family, his mom and dad and you know, his brothers and sisters, they don't want anything to do with him. That would be really convincing to make the argument that maybe perhaps this guy's a phony. So what does Jesus do? What does he do? Does he perform more magic? More power? Does he up the ante? As you perhaps maybe see? I mean, look, I've, been, I've heard literally people say, unless you do miracles, people won't believe. wrong. There couldn't be more wrong. You don't need to see a miracle. These people saw enough. And Jesus is like, I'm amazed. (laughs) If that guy won't convince him, I don't know what will. Right? I mean, he didn't even say to Thomas later on, he said, look, blessed are those who, who, who don't see any of this in belief. Like you and I. What a blessing. You hear the word of God and you believe. Don't ever take that for granted. You know what Jesus with such humility He didn't try to Stir something up When you go overseas And you're on campus And people reject you And they say no I don't really I'm not convinced yet Then Then you honor that You honor that What I see here in Jesus is He didn't try to overpower them I mean he could have literally just said like Voila! And then everyone just started levitating. Oh, who did that? Huh? Now you believe? No. They would never believe. That's not what makes people believe, guys. The gospel is clear. That when the Spirit of God w- and is, is, is compared to a, the wind, wherever He wants to go, and regenerate a soul by His grace, then they believe. You've got to get the order salutis correct. It's the order of salvation. Fancy way of saying that. Why is it so important? Because it isn't you that saves. You cannot save a soul. Isn't that humbling? The Son of God walked the earth and would not up the ante, would not play the game, would not perform the show. He wasn't a magician. He's God. He knew all the power he had. He created all those people that are laughing at him. He created the dirt that they're standing on. He p- created the canopy in which they live under the beautiful sun, sky, clouds. He created all that. He didn't have to, we don't have to try so hard. He just was, he humbly left. It says at the end of verse 6, he wondered at their unbelief and he, Went around teaching around the villages. Well, thankfully, we know at the end of the resurrection, the family did believe in Acts 14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that the grace of God? That's hope for us, that all those people that you're believing for, all those people that you're praying for, all those people that you're trying to reach— don't ever just think, okay, well that, we lost hope. No, no, no. It's Acts 1.14. They didn't believe in, in John 7.5, and now they believe in Acts 1.14. And if that wasn't enough, then you turn to First 1 Corinthians 15.7, he appeared to James and all the apostles. And then in Acts 15.13, you see James, the, the leader of Jerusalem. And then in James 1, he wrote that letter that we all love. And then Jude, the same, same brother, half-brother of Jesus, he wrote the letter of Jude. They were not only just believers, but they were used mightily and powerfully by God. That's hope. We don't force the gospel on anyone. We trust God. Trust God. We faithfully share. We faithfully release the gospel to people. And we do plead. And we do, we, we, we have emotion in it. It's not emotionless. We do have emotion. Yes, come on, please believe. Yes, you do whatever it takes, but then you just, you don't manipulate. You walk away and you trust and you, pray and then in verse three the last part of it says and they took offense to him and in verse four jesus said to them a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his own relatives and his own household and so those in unbelief point three those in unbelief will not only be ashamed of the message but will also attack the messenger they will attack the messenger they will eventually they will be amazed but not impacted they won't be amazed, and they won't be impacted. They, you know, I mean, they're distracted. They're like, oh, is this, you know, a lot of times you see this in evangelism, too. They're kind of distracted by, you're talking about Jesus, and they're talking about the Son, and it's like, we're, we're coming, you know, what, are, what are we doing here? <laughs> this is totally irrelevant to your salvation right now. You see that all the time, and that's what they were doing. Is this not the carpenter's son? Did you miss the point? Did you miss the point? And they did. That's what unbelief does. You miss the point. You miss the obvious. See, unbelief also escalates. Because listen, if you're a true unbelief, an unbeliever, you're in unbelief and you're staying there, you can't just stay at the level of ignorance. You need to attack. You need to attack the message and you will eventually attack the messenger. Scandalon, it just means offense, offense. It's a it's to put off repel to cause to stumble It's rejecting a stone because of minor flaws So looking at jesus like, you know, I like him. You know, I like this part but That i'm offended with i'm for that matter. I'm I, i'm not interested How many of you know that and there's so many people like that, right? They can't stay that way But here's a warning for all of us. Here's what rc sproul says is christ a scandal on for you Are you embarrassed by him? Are you a secret service Christian? Not wanting anyone to know your real identity because you find that being identified with him is an embarrassment, a source of shame? Hmm. If so, I urge you to pray that he will change your heart and cause you to love and adore him. I urge you to do that now, as even you're listening. Lord, please help my unbelief. I have faith, but help my unbelief. There's areas in my life I just, I am hardened. And I want you to soften my heart. The prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. There's just another way of saying familiarity breeds contempt. You ever heard that phrase? Matthew Henry, a Puritan, says this, Familiarity in the younger years breeds a contempt. The advancement of one that was an inferior begets envy. And men will hardly set those among the guides of their souls whose fathers they are, were ready to set with dogs of their flock. They just can't see that. I mean, they, these people were just like nothing, and then all of a sudden there's something. In such a case, therefore, it must not be thought hard. It is common treatment. It was Christ, and wisdom and profitable, is profitable to direct to another soil. In other words, family's hard to reach. Aren't they? They know you. And if you were not like that from day one, especially in an an unbelieving household, or maybe like just a professing Christian kind of household, but not living it out, sometimes those are even worse. And all of a sudden you make them look bad because you're living for Christ and you're talking about Jesus and you're like, man, this is so awesome. I mean, why aren't you excited about this? Why aren't you as excited as I am? It's because familiarity breeds contempt. And that's tough. It's amazing how you're like a shining star with your friends here or people that don't know you very well and people are like, wow, this is amazing. I love your life. And you're just like, man, I don't get that at home. I don't get that in my workplace, if I've, you know, especially if you've worked there for so long and then all of a sudden now you become a Christian and it's like night and day difference. It's like the boss may not be happy with that. Even though you'll be more honest, making more money, it still makes them feel bad. It's a constant prick of like, hey, why don't you also give your life to Jesus? It's like, I don't know about that when people cannot handle the truth and no longer can refute it, they begin to attack the messenger. So I want to warn you that maybe those days are coming. Those days have already arrived for some. But these are real. This is, this is going to come. This is going to come. People will lose jobs in this church because of their faith. People will lose friendships. People will lose the, 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 maybe the closeness of family, you know. The rejection. John 11, 47 to 40, or 53 says, The chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. This is after he, of course, raised Lazarus from the dead. It's a pretty big miracle. And if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. You know, this is a sense of envy. And I'm going to skip a little bit down here for the sake of time, but it says, Now, he did not say this on a known initiative. Cephas he was uh, was sharing about this prophecy, and then uh, they began to uh, plan together to kill him because they didn't know what to do with him. It wasn't enough just to say, you know, we're just going to ignore that truth. We're just going to let them do what they do. No, 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 no. There's going to come a point in time where people in unbelief they cannot stay in that state of allowing others to do what they want. They must attack the messenger. And Matthew 10, 17, 35 to 36, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues or whip you in the synagogues. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Couldn't get more intimate. John fifteen eighteen to 20, he warns his disciples, he says, the world will hate you. And you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, he will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Second Timothy 3.12, Paul again reminds all of us in the church, and he reminded Timothy as he was taking the church in Ephesus, he says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That means all of us. And in fact, the more godly you live, guess what? The more persecuted you'll be. Matthew 5, you know this one, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he says again, your reward's in heaven uh, because uh, they also persecuted the prophets even before you. J.C. Ryle says this as a way of comforting us. There is a comfort for faithful ministers of the gospel who are cast down by the unbelief and in the, in their parishioners or regular hearers. There's a comfort, comfort for true Christians who stand alone in families. And so we'll see both of that. In fact, your friends will be you know, maybe even in your own D house, your own discipleship house, people you live with, your roommates. And they'll start to say, you know, hey, I don't, I don't like the way you're living. I don't, it brings conviction on my life. And, and, and then, of course, Ryle is saying those outside, too. But let both remember that they are drinking the same cup as their beloved master. You are suffering for Christ, and that is wonderful. Let them remember that he, too, was despised most by those who Him knew best. Who knew him best Like his family His own His own I'm, I, We all know that Mary believed So we don't count her in that Of course But the rest of them That hurt That, that had to hurt And don't say like Oh it's just his half brother That's why No no Let them learn that The utmost consistency Of conduct Will not make others Adopt their views <laughs> You're not going to, just because you're living right and because you have all the answers, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to just follow you. The utmost consistency of conduct will not make others adopt their views and opinions any more than it did the people of, of Nazareth. Let them know that the sorrowful words of their Lord will generally be filled in the experience of His servants. A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin, and in his own house. Number four, verse. we're going to look at verse five and six, but number four, those in unbelief will lose whatever light they already have. Guys, that's the most terrifying of all these points. You're going to lose it. If you don't use it, what? You lose it. How many weeks ago? It was probably about two three weeks ago we said that. They're going to be prevented from future truth. You're not going to be able to see the more profound truths of Scripture when you don't believe the very little that you do have. Jesus could do no more miracles in this city. He said, look, it says here in verse 5, Mark writes, and he could do no more miracles except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them. That sounds contradicting. I would imagine that he laid his hands on people who couldn't speak. Maybe there's a little girl who's who, who's blind, who's mute, who, you know, is just on her deathbed or whatever, and he just he just sort of goes around, just hey, just out of compassion, out of love, out of mercy. He didn't hate that city. He's like, no, no, that's it. None of you people are going to get this. No, no, he didn't do that. You know, God is incredibly patient, and that's also terrifying. Because you're like, wow, I got away with that, scot-free, woo!" And, And you don't realize that maybe your dad, you know, clamped down on you right away, but that's not how God works. Sometimes that's even more terrifying. So Jesus, he did heal people that never expressed faith. And there's plenty of proof in the Scripture. So all those little... TV guys, you must have faith. You have to have faith. What? No. He healed people without faith because Jesus is incredibly merciful and loving. It's common grace. Whether they come to faith, and you remember the lepers, right? I mean, only one came back and said thank you. Where are the other ones? So the purpose of miracles, as we know, and we've studied in the book of Acts, is to prove the message of salvation To authenticate Jesus is the Son of God, but it's all ultimately the message in which Jesus came to preach because that is which saves people's lives. And so he's like, Look, if the miracles are not working, if people don't even believe in the miracles, which authenticate the message, then it's probably best that I leave. And you know that what I love about this is that when you you have to see that persecution is a way to advance the gospel. It's a way to, because it, it, otherwise, we as humans, we would get stuck and we would just keep fighting and we just keep going. And In reality, there's like five or six other cities that God has for us as a church, and so He wants us to. Maybe it's a neighborhood. Maybe you're like, maybe it's a part of campus, and you just keep going at it over and over. And it's like, okay, I, God's like, okay, I admire your perseverance, but you keep getting rejected maybe use that as an opportunity to go another part where they would receive you. Amen? So we need to think through these things. We need to do ministry like Jesus. This is why we're studying him, to know him and to know how he ministered. All right, so another thing, too, is worth noting is that you can make an argument that he didn't do any more miracles there because of judgment, but I would say, according to Scripture, he didn't do any more miracles because of mercy. Because, listen, when people know more information, the consequences are more severe. And so he says this in Matthew 11, and 20, 24, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable, tolerable in Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? Will you descend to Hades? For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have been, you would have remained to this day or it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable and, uh, for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. In other words, they saw way more. And they, they, they're going to have much more judgment because they're literally standing with the Son of God himself. And that is, that judgment's going to be unbearable. They had full revelation Matthew 12, 39, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to, to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. In other words, these people might be saying in the back of their minds, only if he did one more miracle, I would believe. Have you ever met anybody like that? Maybe even on, on a college campus or you know, overseas when we would share the gospel. Show me. Prove it. Prove that it's God. You know what Jesus does in that instance? Walks away. Because that one extra miracle is not going to cause belief. It's just sheer ignorance, arrogance, spiritual pride, unbelief. Unfortunately, that's the world we live in, but Mark 4.25 is so clear. Whatever little information that you do have, revelation, I should say, and you don't do anything with it, even this morning, right now as I speak, the revelation that you do have will be taken from you. And this is why we need to learn from this small little city of 500 people. We need to learn from it. There's something here for all of us. Don't you leave this place thinking, oh, I don't have any unbelief. Obviously, obviously came to church. That doesn't believe, mean belief. You, just, you can hear, you can articulate, you can, I mean, that doesn't mean anything. J.C. Rouse says this, we can never be too much on our guard against unbelief, right? Is the oldest sin in the world. It began in the Garden of Eden when Eve listened to the devil's promises instead of believing God's words, you will die. It is the most ruinous of all sins and its consequences. It has brought death into the world. It kept Israel for 40 years out of Canaan. It is the sin that especially fills hell. He that believeth shall not be damned. It is the most foolish and inconsistent of all sins. It makes a man refuse the plainest evidence, shut his eyes against the clearest testimony, and yet believes lies. Worst of all is the commonest sin in the world. Thousands are guilty of it on every side. Both the religious side and the non-religious side. In profession, they are Christians, but in practice, they are really unbelievers. Is that who we are? They do not implicitly believe the Bible and receive Christ as their Savior. Don't harden your hearts, Hebrews two says. But if you hear it, believe, believe. He goes on to say this, let us go on watching our hearts even after we have believed. Even if you have, even if you are a believer and you've walked with Christ for quite some time, listen, the root of unbelief is never entirely destroyed. It's always lingering. It's in the atmosphere. It's going through the news waves. The airwaves, I should say. Right? Through YouTube, through articles, politicians, teachers. It's never entirely destroyed. We have only to leave off watching and praying and a rank crop unbelief will soon rise and spring up. No prayer is... So important as that of the disciples, Lord, increase our faith. I don't know how many times I say that throughout the week. Lord, It's either in Mark 9, which we'll get to in 10 years. But the, he says, you know, Lord, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. I believe, I mean, I believe, but help my unbelief. What did he do? He recognized that it was imperfect perfect faith he recognized that there, there was just some, there's still a part of him that just un, that just didn't quite believe at certain times because of trials and tribulations or circumstances. Or at times I pray, just Lord, increase our faith. You know, remember Luke 17, he says that. He's, he's saying, well, how many times do I need to forgive? I mean, it's all, i mean, I'm just offended, offended, offended. And how many times do I have to forgive? Jesus is like, many, 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 many times, unlimited amount oh, then you need to help my faith a lot. Is that, is that you? Can you admit with your roommates, I don't have the faith for this. Can you tell your wife that? I'm weak in faith right now. Or is it like, yeah, I'm believing. Come on, man, I'm believing. And inside it's like, who are you fooling? I mean, if Jesus' disciples could say, Lord, increase my faith. I'm, frankly, I think that's one of the most humbling things we've seen in Scripture, haven't we? Really is amazing. And Number five, what is Jesus most amazed about in your life? Well, he said at the end of the day, I'm amazed at your unbelief or your faith. What do I mean by that? I think Jesus was amazed at the faith of those who had no access, like you and me do. Access to what? In other words, when he was marveling at their faith, he was saying, I don't know how this guy would believe because of his background. This guy doesn't know, he's not come from a religious background. I mean, this guy knows nothing about me. And yet he believes? That's amazing. That must be the father giving him faith. But he's equally amazed at the unbelief who have such access to the gospel like as you go through the mountain paths of South America, you see such religiosity and such unbelief. How do you have such amazing teachings and books literally flying off your shelves? I mean, libraries, YouTube video cues, multiple meetings throughout the week, life group, discipleship, teachings, Crosses on every corner. And I'm just amazed at your unbelief. I I just don't even understand that. You see what Jesus is saying, chapter 6 here? What's he amazed by in your life? What's he amazed by? I'm going to read, before I close, I'm going to read a few uh, quotes here from throughout church history that I think will be helpful in helping us understand the seriousness of unbelief, and then a little pastoral note before we close on doubt. D.A. Carson, who's a New Testament scholar, he says this, failure to believe stems from moral failure to recognize the truth, not from a lack of evidence, but from willful neglect or distortion of the evidence. In other words, it's willful. You you have everything you need. You have every every reason to believe, but yet you're like, I don't want to. That's unbelief, okay? And I want to differentiate this because I want you to to, to go home with either an affliction or comfort, which is really the goal of every service. Horatius Bonar, he says this, there is nothing so hardening as unbelief And one great reason for this is that there is nothing so deceitful. It does not look a great sin, nay, sometimes not like sin at all, but like modesty and humility. In other words, it hides. It says this, it pretends to be jealous for God. How many, right? Yeah? To be conscious for personal unworthiness, to be unfit to venture on a hope of acceptance. We want to be accepted in our own church. We wouldn't dare admit our unbelief. Thus, it deceives. It actually hides itself. In a sinister manner, lessens its own wickedness, veils its hatefulness under the name of humility. In all these ways, it contrives to destroy faith, to cherish itself, and so harden the heart. John Owen, Puritan, said this, 1600s, for no sin whereof men can be guilty in this world is of so horrible a nature and so dreadful an aspect as in this unbelief where a clear view of it is obtained in evangelical light. In other words, if you're going to church and you live in America and you have all this access and you still remain in unbelief, that is the most horrible of them all. You remember John, or Matthew 7? He did all these things. And yet I never knew you. Charles Spurgeon says, We often talk of unbelief as it were an affliction to be pitied instead of a crime to be condemned. In other words, we pet it. We're like, yeah, okay, unbelief or prize. not so bad as, like, these other ones. Sins. So, no, no, no. This one is to be Condemned more than any of them because it's faith that pleases God, doesn't it? It's faith that saves. It's faith that moves mountains. And it's faith that you're able to overcome sin. Jerry Bridges, I, I believe, i I I've tried to research some that would bring more of a... I, <laughs> I ended pretty much there, and I was like, wow, that's not hopeful. Um <laughs> <laughs> in my study. I was like, well, go home. <laughs> Thank you for coming. I thought about it, but then the Holy Spirit in His kindness said, you need to pastor my sheep. And I agree. I want to. I want to. But Jerry Bridges says this, there is a vast difference between a struggling faith and a stubborn unbelief. That's right. I think many of us are there, aren't we? We have this, since we're struggling, we're like that man that says, "I, I believe, Lord. I-, I want to believe. I- help my unbelief, Lord. Increase my faith. I need you. I-, I can't live this alone." Right? And Henry Henry Drummond says this: Christ never failed to distinguish between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is can't believe. Unbelief is won't believe. Doubt is honesty, as we were illustrating. And unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light. Unbelief is content with darkness. I don't want to be content with darkness. I don't want to be fine with my stubbornness and okay and comforted there. Don't comfort me there. You should say that as a disciple or right and a disciple say, Don't comfort me there. Don't don't oh it's okay that you're No, I, I don't want to stay there. And if you are that person like, I don't want to stay there, then you know you're his. And if you find yourself not really caring or being flippant about your unbelief, you're like, Whatever, man, you know, we'll see what happens in the end. I'll throw the dice. I'll spin the revolver. Just find out Russian roulette, and just figure, figure it out. Hey, look, I don't take the gamble. Don't do that. You know that's not how it ends. Don't be deceived. Charles Spurgeon, I think, says it right: is that we took our sins and drove them like nails through his hands and feet. We lifted him high up on the cross of our transgressions, and then we pierced his heart through with a spear of unbelief but I find that not necessarily hopeless but hopeful because my unbelief along with every other sin that I've ever committed is put on the body of Jesus and you know what I have I have his promise that those who come to him he will by no means cast out and so come to him. Come to Christ. If you have unbelief, if you feel like, I, I feel like I'm like 25% belief and 75% unbelief. And maybe it's 99 to 1. And he said you should just have just faith like a mustard seed. Enough to believe. Just enough to believe, to trust him. You'll be saved. And not only that, he will comfort you. He will move on behalf of your prayers. That's the God we serve. He will by no means cast out. That's the wonderful thing about church is, yeah, it's the word of God is incredibly convicting. And, you know, like Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you know, that's why the psalmist keeps on saying, Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him. He reminds himself of who God is. That's what we need to do all the time. All throughout the day, when we are in our unbelief. Oh God, would you remind me again of who you are? Would you show me that you're the rock, you're the refuge, and I want to find myself in you? That's what we want to do. That's who we are as a people. We're people that, yes, we do struggle. We do struggle with doubt. Everybody does. Every strong believer even does. But we know who to go to when we have it, right? It's Christ. The author and the perfector of our faith, who the joy I set before Him endure the cross. So, Father, thank you that you are an example, but you are someone we not only just look to, but we we have faith in and we trust you that you had great faith to go to the cross. You had no doubt; you were perfect, unblemished lamb, spotless, and you took our place at the cross. And you exchanged your faith, your perfect faith, and you gave that to us. And for our imperfect faith and really even our unbelief. And so, Father, we pray that you would you would give us faith, increase our faith. Not some sort of myst- mystical kind of faith, like faith in what? Belief in you, Jesus.